Well, good morning again. So, James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. It's true religion. So, I'll just pray first. Father, help us to have our hearts teachable, to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to wrath. And also that we would receive the implanted word into our hearts with meekness so we can be saved. Not just initial salvation, but Lord, also saved from the power of sin and live a holy life. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just a background. It's been like three weeks now. Last time we read in James, of his own will, this is verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And this means that God was self-motivated to save us. So it's of his own will. And his love for us is simply a part of his nature. It has nothing to do with me. We are saved by grace, not by works. Salvation is a gift that no one can boast about. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So it doesn't depend on how good we are or how good we're not. None of us measure up because we're all sinners. We're not perfect. We're not good enough. So we also learnt that we are born again or brought forth by the word of truth. And the word of truth is the word of God. That's what Jesus said in John 17, 17. And the effect of this is to make us a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And this basically means that we are started on the path of change, the path of change that results in us becoming like our creator. We call that sanctification or being made holy. And now we're going to start to get practical. If it wasn't already, it is now. <laughs> If we are the first fruits of his creatures, then how should we behave? So this week we cover James chapter 1, verses 17 to 27, and we learn what true religion looks like, what thoughts, words, and deeds are pleasing to God and reflect his nature. And of course, we need to be willing to listen or learn to listen before we speak. Remember that only the word of God has the power to save our souls. We need to be a doer and not just a hearer. That's how we receive the word. We have to put it into practice with humility, saying that, yep, God, you're right, and I'm not. Your word is true. My thoughts and my opinions don't matter. I need to surrender to what you say is correct and true. And also what true repentance looks like. It's a changed life which is focused on serving others. And remember, Jesus didn't come to serve himself, but to serve others. So let's do a memory verse. It's been three weeks, so let's see how we go. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. You ready? Together. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So let's read in James chapter 1 from verse 16. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, 
that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, This one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So as I said, (laughs) a very challenging scripture. So learning to listen. I'll just read verses 19 and 20. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we've been born again, yeah? Once we're saved, we're born again. We are new creations. Once you're born again, you are a new creation. Yeah. We should be living a changed life. And one of the first things to change must be our tongue. The way we speak to people. And James here warns us about the sins of the tongue. Now, remember, James is a book of wisdom. It's a wisdom book. And Proverbs is also a wisdom book. And I've included some Proverbs here to show that James gets a lot of his information and his thoughts from the Old Testament. And it also helps us to understand what he's saying a bit better. All right. So the first one is Proverbs 14.29. It says, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. And I've also got it in the New Living. So for all these, I've done two translations, the New King James and the New Living. Translation. So in the New Living, Proverbs 14.29 says, People with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. And now the next one is Proverbs 15.18. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. In the New Living it says, A hot-tempered person starts fights, a cool-tempered person stops them. The next one is Proverbs 16.32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. In the New Living it says, Better to be patient than powerful, better to have self-control than to conquer a city. And then Proverbs 19.11, the last one. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. And in the New Living it says, Sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. So, 
hope that gives you a bit more understanding of what James is talking about. Now, there's a couple of quotes here, and there's two applications. The first one is uh, about us being willing to listen and be teachable. So it's from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. It says, A continual talker cannot hear what anyone else is saying, and by the same token will not hear when God speaks. Finally, the restraint of anger is demanded, for anger closes the mind to God's truth. A fiercely argumentative attitude is not conducive to the humble reception of truth. And then a quote from John Corson, and this time the context is being quick to listen, slow to speak in the context of persecution. Because sometimes when you go through hard times, the first thing we want to do is complain, yeah? So in this context, John Corson says, In talking to the believers dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, undergoing unbelievable persecution, James says, don't forget that God is good, and what is happening in you is going to work for good ultimately. Therefore, don't be cynical. Don't be quick to complain about your situation. Instead, stop speaking and start listening, and you'll hear God's voice in your trial. So there's a lot of wisdom in learning to listen before we speak. And so we can learn, we can understand others, we can receive correction, we can receive truth, and we can gain perspective in difficult situations. Now, what is wrath? How is wrath different to anger? Well, anger is an emotion. It's something we feel. Wrath is the outward expression of anger. So I can be angry but still smile at you and still speak nicely to you because I can hide my emotions, yeah? But wrath is the expression of my anger. And the Greek word is orge, O-R-G-E, the word that's translated wrath here. And it means a natural impulse, punishment, rage, punishing, destructive anger, outbursts of anger, fierce anger, greatly angered, one's temper, passion and indignation. Verse 19, it says, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. So how can we learn to be slow to wrath, to not lose our temper, to blow up? Well, we first need to learn to be swift to hear and slow to speak. And you know, at least for me, speak for myself here, most of the time our anger and wrath comes from being self-centered because we want to get our own way. That's our human nature, right? When we don't get our own way, what do we do? We get angry. And if we don't get our own way enough, we explode. So basically, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God is because we are at heart selfish people with our sinful nature. And when we don't get our own way, the natural response is anger. So that's what James is trying to tell us here. And that's why we must learn to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Because then we can evaluate if the anger we are experiencing is a selfish anger because someone is violating my rights, or because I, like Jesus, am genuinely upset for the sake of others. And that's an others-centered reaction instead of being a self-centered reaction. So there is a time to demonstrate wrath. God demonstrates wrath. Wrath is not always wrong. And I want to give you an example of 
godly wrath, where Jesus demonstrated godly wrath. And it's when Jesus was driving out the money changers and the merchants in the temple. And he is the best example, as usual, he's always the best example, of being swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. So we're going to read from John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. It's when Jesus cleanses the temple at the start of his ministry. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. Now, the context is that they're ripping people off. They wouldn't accept any other currency but temple currency, and the exchange rate was exorbitant. It was a rip-off, and people knew it, and they were starting to loathe going to the temple. They didn't want to give money to the temple because they're getting ripped off. And the animals, they bring a sheep, and the priest would say, oh, that sheep's not perfect. We've got one over here that is, though but it's going to cost you twice as much. <laughs> and so it was, yeah, it was turning people off God, discouraging people from worshipping God. And verse 15, it says, When he, Jesus, had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changes' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. That is to say, a way of making money. Don't rip people off to make money out of people. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. That speaks of a really strong emotion there, doesn't it, right? So Jesus was really angry, even wrathful. But not because of how he was treated, but rather because of the tremendous disservice that the priests were doing to the people who were coming to worship God. They were hindering or blocking their access to God because of their greed and materialism. They were misrepresenting God. Now this is something that should make us all upset. This is something that should make us angry. Why? Because it's the ultimate deception. If you are turning people away from God by misrepresenting God, where are they going to go? To the lake of fire for eternity, right? This is a serious thing. This is something we should be getting a bit fired up about, a bit zealous about, yeah? The truth. Stand up for the truth. Think about Paul. When Peter started to compromise, he stood up. That's it. I'm not going to stand for this. He stood face to face with Peter and said, no, you're not going to keep going with this. This is wrong. And they had that big conference in Acts 15. But back here, we want to learn from Jesus' example about how he expressed his anger and his wrath. He did express his anger. There is a time to express anger, but in a controlled way. So the first thing he did was he sat down and he spent a considerable amount of time making a whip of cords. So, I don't know if you've ever tried to make a whip of cords, but plaiting strings together, it takes some time. While he was doing that, what was he doing? He wasn't really talking. I mean, I imagine he wasn't talking. He was listening. So he was slow to speak and quick to listen. And this was not a cruel and destructive cat and nine tails type of whip. It was just made up some thin cords or ropes woven together. So the three points here are he was swift to hear because he spent time listening 
and observing what was going on. He didn't say anything to them initially, he was slow to speak. And when he did finally make his move, it was in a controlled manner, it was slow to wrath. And how do we know that? Well, if you were really angry and out of control, what would you have done with the cages that held the doves? You would have just tipped them over, yeah? Just like the money changers tables and all the doves would have been like fluttering around and probably injured, yeah? But Jesus was angry, very angry, but his anger was controlled and to the point where he didn't want to even harm the birds in the cages. And he gently asked them, showing compassion, empathy and generosity, even to the animals, would you please take these cages with the doves out of the temple? So he's in control. And that's the main point here. So we need to be thinking about how we speak to people, especially other Christians. You know, we hear something, oh, that's wrong, and we can react. I would suggest that we don't react, but we wait. And for me, I need at least a week to calm down and to think things through and to get the right perspective. And then, okay, I can respond with empathy and grace and wisdom instead of just, <gasps> you know. That's not right. No. Yeah, anyway. So let's move on to verses 21 and 25, and I've called this true repentance leads to real change or true religion. So it says in James 1, 21 to 25, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So, James 1.21, this is standing firm against the lusts of the flesh. James is a book about sanctification. It's about change. It's about becoming godly. It's about the evidence of our salvation, yeah? So it says in verse 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So in the start of that verse it says, And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So initially we are first saved, how? By hearing the word of God, Romans 10.17. Saving faith. That is being saved from the penalty of my sins. That's what we call justification. It's justified, never sinned. But that's only the start. We need to continue to receive the word of God if we are going to be continually saved from the power of sin. It's not a one-off thing, it's a lifetime experience. And this practical outworking of our salvation is called sanctification. Another way of saying sanctification is to be made holy. To be made pure. To be made like God. Now, I read this somewhere. Someone said that sin is the devil's vomit. And it stinks. So the filthiness and the overflow of wickedness is here contrasted with the new life that results from the transforming power of the Word of God, which we only experience when we receive it. Notice that? 
it says we must receive it. It's not automatic. We can live as a Christian without receiving the word, yeah? Receiving it is the same thing as putting it into action, or it's useless. So this contrast between the lust of the flesh or the desires of the human nature, described here in James as all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. So where is it coming from? It's from our sinful nature, yeah? Remember we learned that a few weeks ago? All our sin, our desires for sin, come from inside. It overflows from our sinful nature. So there's contrasting that with the fruit of the Spirit. And a really good passage to make this really clear is Galatians 5, 17 to 25. It says, The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. Verse 19. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, now, remember the sinful nature, all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, as we read in James, the results are very clear. So what is this all filthiness and overflow of wickedness? It's sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that means continuously living that sort of life. It doesn't mean if you get drunk once as a Christian, you've lost your salvation. Verse 22. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So in verse 24 it said, in Galatians 5, it said that those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. How do we do that? Well, the answer is in James. James tells us how. By meekly or humbly receiving the implanted word. And another way of explaining meekly and humbly receiving is to have a teachable spirit. We've read in Proverbs previously that a teachable spirit is a wise person. But someone who is proud is unteachable. So we need to be teachable. We need to be willing to listen and to do what the Word tells us. When the Word shows us something about ourselves, guess what? We need to you know what? That's true. But now, what am I going to do to change? It's my responsibility to put these things into action. God gives me the power, but I need to act on it. So, what this means is that we no longer live by what we think is good or right, but we willingly choose to submit to what God says in the Bible is good and right. And then, we go to Galatians 5.25, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. 
That doesn't happen until we have crucified our old desires, until we have willingly submitted, willingly received the implanted word. We've become teachable. So in summary, James is showing us the spiritual power of God's word. This is really important. And I like the way David Guzik puts it. He says, the word of God carries the power of God. So if you ever wondered why you should read the Bible, look right here. You don't have to go any further. The word of God carries the power of God. And this is why reading, studying and meditating on the word of God daily is so important for us. We will stay stuck in sin if we don't and remain a slave to the power of sin. So the degree that we will change now, day by day, week by week, is dependent upon how much time we give to reading the Word. That's the first thing. We need to read it. But secondly, how much of it are we going to put into practice? How teachable or humble are we going to be? Two things. Read it and then do it. That's what James is saying. Romans 12 too, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We know the verse. But how do you renew your mind? It's by receiving the word of God. It's by being teachable and doing what it says. Being conformed to the world is the same thing as all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. So, again, the contrast here, the opposite to being conformed to the world is being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that happens by the power of the word of God. What did Jesus say in John 17, 17? He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And the New Living Version says, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. So we are made holy by being taught the word of God, by studying the word of God. Now, one of my favorite psalms, I'd say definitely my favorite psalm, is Psalm 119. And what does it do? Almost every verse talks about the Word of God. So just two verses from Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word? So how do we stay away from sin? How do we overcome the power of a sinful nature it's by being in the word and hiding in a heart and doing it now verse 21 says receive with meekness the implanted word and Spurgeon says about the word receive it's a quote from him the first thing then is receive that word receive is a very instructive gospel word it is the door through which God's grace enters to us We are not saved by working, but by receiving. Not by what we give to God, but by what God gives to us. And we receive from Him. So we are completely dependent upon God to do the work inside of us, but we need to be willing to cooperate. Remember, that work will happen. We will grow up. But you can have a life at home with your parents where you are always rebellious and your parents will have a hard time raising you, but they will still raise you. And God might have a hard time with some of us, probably especially me, but he will still raise me, yeah? 
So we can make our childhood, our growing up, an easy childhood, make it easy on the father. He doesn't have to discipline us so much, or me. (laughs) Or we can make it difficult by always refusing to be teachable. Now, next verse, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, another quote from David Guzik, we must receive God's word as doers, not merely hearers. To take comfort in the fact that you have heard God's word when you haven't done it is to deceive yourself. It was common in the ancient world for people to hear a teacher. If you followed the teacher and tried to live what he said, you were called a disciple of that teacher. We may say that Jesus is looking for disciples, doers, not mere hearers. That makes sense? And that was me, I think, for a long time. It still is sometimes. Oh, that was a wonderful sermon I listened to, or wonderful commentary I just read, or isn't that great? And I really understand more. But I haven't done anything about it. I haven't changed, it hasn't changed me because I haven't put it into practice. So And Jesus taught on this in Matthew seven, twenty four to twenty seven. He said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So the one who hears and obeys will be able to withstand the storms of life, overcome the temptation that comes, However, those who hear what is spoken but do not obey it will come to sudden destruction and therefore will be great. There will be shame. There will be pain. Their sin will find them out. Their sin will destroy them. Now, I've got a few quotes here which really helped me and so I thought they might help you too. So the first one is from a guy called Moffat. A teacher or preacher may give an eloquent address on the gospel or explain ably some Old Testament prophecy about Christ. But when the sermon is done, it is not done. Something remains to be done by the hearers in life. And if they content themselves with sentimental admiration or with enjoying the emotional or mental treat, they need not imagine that this is religion. And then one from Spurgeon, similar vein, similar thought. I fear we have many such in all congregations, admiring hearers, affectionate hearers, attached hearers, but all the while unblessed hearers, because they are not doers of the word. Another quote from Spurgeon, You know the old story. I am half ashamed to repeat it again, but it is so pat to the point. When Donald came out sooner than usual, Sandy said to him, What, Donald? Is the sermon all done? No, said Donald. It is all said, but it is not begun to be done yet. The sermon has been said, but it has not begun to be done yet. Whose responsibility is the doing? It's the hearers, yeah? So when we read the Bible, 
We read it, but it's not done. We've listened, but it's not done. We've put it into practice, yeah? Someone once gave me some sound advice. When you hear a sermon, think of at least one thing that you can put into practice from that sermon. One thing. Yep, I need to fix that. I need to change here. I can improve here. And that'll be good because you'll always be growing. You'll always be teachable. Because if we don't do that, what are we really saying? Well, I already know everything. I don't need to be taught anything else. Verses 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. This is foolishness. And I have to admit, I'm a fool sometimes. So, any truth a person like this receives concerning the walk with God and their character does no good in their life because it's not applied. And I think it applies to most of us, at least some of the time. Because of our sinful nature, we are stubborn. And I know that I've often been slow to apply the truth of God's word many times. You know, I've told you before about how long it took years and years and years for me to stop watching action movies with swearing and, you know, the the women who are not dressed properly and all that kind of stuff, you know, and it's just like, why did I keep watching it? And when I stopped, it's like, why was I attracted to those things in the first place? Spirit was convicting me. I knew what the Bible said. Philippians 4, 13, 14, I think it is. Whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is lovely, whatever is honorable, etc., think upon these things. I knew they didn't match up, but I still watched them anyway. See, that's me not being teachable. So, I may know something is wrong, but I can justify or continue doing it anyway. So, Thankfully, God has been very patient, and over the years there has been change. In many areas of my life, I have finally submitted, I've become teachable in that area, and there's still many areas to go. <laughs> so, looking back, how much further down the road to sanctification would I be now if I had been more willing to obey previously? Now, to illustrate this, just imagine doing this with your physical appearance. I'll use myself as the example again. So I go to the mirror, I carefully observe that I have Vegemite smeared all around my mouth. I have boogies hanging out of my nose, lettuce in my teeth, my hair sticking up in all directions, my shirt incorrectly buttoned up, and my cereal spilled all over my black pants. But then, as soon as I look away, I forget what I look like, and I go to work thinking that, whoa, I'm the man. Look how handsome and well-dressed I am. I look great. I'm really going to impress those around me today. What am I doing? I'm making a fool of myself. My hair's not done. My breath smells. You know, I've got stuff all over my mouth. You know, my pants have got cereal still on them. And people look at me going, well, what kind of person is that? Yes, and that's very true. Sometimes our wives can be a very good mirror as well. And our friends, yes? It's good. So if I don't listen, if I look and then I forget, if I listen and don't do, I'm just making a fool out of myself and I'm bringing shame to God. So observing his natural face, a quote from David Guzik, the ancient Greek word translated observing has the idea of careful scrutiny. So by application, James had in mind people who give a careful scrutiny of God's word. They may be regarded as Bible experts, 
but it still doesn't result in doing. Still doesn't result in doing. Spurgeon says, The glass of the word is not like our ordinary looking glass, which merely shows us our external features, but according to the Greek of our text, the man sees in it the face of his birth, that is, the face of his nature. He that reads and hears the word may not see only his actions there, but his motives, his desires, his inward condition. So that's what the word does. And those verses in Hebrews, the word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, cut between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Now, the goal and duty of any Bible teacher is to present the truth of the word as clearly as possible without getting in the way. The doctrines of God, the truth of the word, is God's spiritual mirror that reveals to us what we are on the inside. The law does that. And like was mentioned before, the sermon may have been said, but it still remains to be done. Your Bible reading has been read, but it still remains to be done, yeah? Verse 25, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So, what is the benefit of studying the word of God intently and then doing it? That's what it means by continuing it, doing it. We will be blessed in what we do, the beautiful fruits of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of righteousness. Verse 25, it says, He who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and the Greek word for looks into, it spoke of a thorough examination. So imagine you're looking down at something and you bend down to get a better look. And so the main point here is that though James stressed doing, he did not neglect studying God's word either. We need to be looking into, studying carefully God's word, bending over to get a better look, so to speak. And what this means practically is spending more time in the word without distraction. Now, the Greek word translated continues is paramenas, which means to remain. Stay on, remain with, stay beside, to remain faithful, to stand one's ground, to stand fast. So once we see the state of our soul, the grace of God, the extent of our duty and the promised glory waiting for us, we should not forget it, but rather be faithful to apply it, to continue in it. Now, this is a sweeping generalization here, so please don't anyone take offense. But it's just a metaphor, right? So, What does it mean to continue in it? Well, a lady standing in front of a mirror, looking pretty, yeah? So, the makeup must be perfectly applied, her hair perfectly straightened and styled, the eyelashes glued on in the right place, the teeth sparkling white, her clothes perfectly clean and ironed. She won't leave until everything is right. She will stand her ground and remain faithful to make herself look nice, no matter how long it takes. (laughs) Okay. We need the same commitment when it comes to our character and walk with God. Too often we look, but don't continue. We are not faithful to stay in front of the mirror of the Word until all those changes are made, yeah? To completely clean up the old life, to take the time and put in the required effort to remove the spots and blemishes on our character. Now, how long is this going to take? The rest of our life. But if we don't stay in front of the mirror and keep 
working on the blemishes on our character, then they're just going to remain. In verse 25, it says, The perfect law of liberty. I thought we were free from the law, yeah? (laughs) But this is a wonderful way to describe the Word of God. The perfect law of liberty. And again, it might sound strange to describe the new covenant as a law, so let's find out what it means. So, in the new covenant, God reveals to us a law, but it's called the law of liberty. Why is it the law of liberty? Because we have a new heart with new desires, and we want to obey God. It's not something we're forced to do. It's not something we're compelled to do out of fear. It's something that we want to do. It's something we are free to do. God's commands are now his promises. Yeah? Thou shall not steal. It's not a you must not steal. It's you won't steal anymore. Yeah? It's a promise. You have the power to be a giver and not a taker. Thou shalt not lie. It's not saying you must not do this anymore. For the Christian, we read that as you shall not lie. You now have the power to be free from lying and now you can tell the truth. It's the law of liberty for us, the new covenant. And in Romans 3.27, the law of liberty is referred to as the law of faith. It's another way of saying the same thing. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. And a theologian called Paul, he says, the whole doctrine of Scripture, or especially the Gospel, called a law, Romans 3.27, both as it is a rule, and by reason of the power it has over the heart and a law of liberty because it shows the way to the best liberty. I'll say it a little bit again. Because it shows the way to the best liberty, freedom from sin, the bondage of the ceremonial law, the rigor of the moral law, and from the wrath of God. It's the law of liberty. We are free from all those things, yeah? So the law of liberty means we are free from the power of sin. We are free from the bondage of the old ceremonial law in the Old Testament. We are free from the bondage of the moral law. It's not something we can't keep, but it's something we promise we can keep. And we're free from the wrath of God. Now, we move on to 26 and 27, and these are examples of what it means, what it looks like, to be a doer of the word of God. So, verse 26, in James chapter 1. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Tough words, eh? Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So what do we have here? Both service and purity, chastity and love. So if anyone... among you thinks he is religious, verse 26. Thinks he is religious, yeah? Thinks he is religious. Again, we are reminded that we can be so easily deceived into thinking that we are someone that we are not, or something that we are not. And, you know, when people say to me, are you religious? I'll say, no, but I do have relationship. 
Now, the word religion in the New Testament is never used in a positive sense. The Greek word translated religious here, it's never used in a positive sense. Acts 17.22 Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Colossians 2.23 These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. What does it say? Self-imposed religion. False humility and neglect of the body but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. They will not help you overcome your sinful nature, the power of sin. So this is what it's talking about, religion. So James is using this word religion here, thinks he is religious, as someone who is religious but is not really right with God. And he uses a couple of examples. He says the first example is the person who does not bridle or control their tongue. Now, what is religion? A little bit off topic, but religion is man's attempt to reach God, whereas Christianity is God reaching down to man. And that really tough phrase there in verse 26, this one's religion is useless. And David Guzik says, your walk with God is useless if it does not translate into the way you live and the way you treat others. Many are deceived in their own heart regarding the reality of their walk with God. That's so true. True for me, often. We often think we're better than we are, you know. And this definition of religion causes me to think of legalism and the tendency to focus on the outward appearance. We want to be a good Christian around others by keeping external observances, but being at the same time, heart of heart toward God on the inside and other people around us. Difficult to get along with. Critical. And the Jews, especially the Pharisees, were really good at doing this, being legalistic. You know, they make long prayers, for example, and then force a widow out of her house, leaving her homeless. So these were indeed very religious, but not godly at all. So you can be religious, but not godly. It's very important. That's what James is trying to say here. So let's go back to what Jesus said about this. Matthew 23, 23 to 26. He says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will become clean too. So there's no point in being religious if you're not godly. Now, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God. David Guzik says again, 
There is a great deal of pure and undefiled religion in the sight of man that is not pure and undefiled religion before God. I'll say that again. There is a great deal of pure and undefiled religion in the sight of man that is not pure and undefiled religion before God. Because the way man looks at things is different to the way God looks at things. Think of what it means to be a man-pleaser versus being a God-pleaser. And I think the move towards ecumenicalism involves a lot of man-pleasing as people abandon the truth of the gospel, the purity of the gospel, for the sake of uniformity. Let's have things we can all agree with. Let's be uniform. That's not unity. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. That's not unity. Unity is we're all doing different things but have the same purpose. Uniformity is we all do the same thing. So the whole thrust of ecumenicalism is that we don't offend each other. And the only way that we don't offend each other is to sacrifice truth. Galatians 1.10 Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. You can't do both. You're a man-pleaser or you're a God-pleaser. If you're pleasing God, there'll be a lot of men you won't please. If you're pleasing men, then you won't please God. Verse 27, to visit orphans and widows in the trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So being a Christian and having a real walk with God shows itself in simple, practical ways. It helps both those in need and keeps itself pure and unstained by the world's corruption. And as I said before, the two ways we demonstrate our Christianity, our relationship with God, is by charity or love and purity, which is holiness. And Spurgeon says, Charity and purity are the two great garments of Christianity. So how we treat people and how we serve others. So Clark says, regarding where it says in verse 27, to visit orphans and widows, the word visit there. Clark says about that, true religion does not merely give something for the relief of the distressed, but it visits them. It takes the oversight of them. It takes them under its care. That's what this word means. It goes to their houses. It speaks to their hearts. It relieves their wants. It sympathizes with them in their distresses, instructs them in divine things, and recommends them to God. And it does all this for the Lord's sake. This is the religion of Christ. It's one thing to give some money to a poor person, but it's another thing to bring that poor person into your home and look after them. That's what the word visits mean here. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble. To actually go out of your way. Not just to, I'll help you find a shelter or I'll buy you a McDonald's meal or something. No. To really care for them in a really deep way, you know? And the last bit there is, in verse 27, unspotted from the world. I like the metaphor A boat should be in the water, but the water is not meant to be in the boat. So Christians are to be in the world, but not be influenced by the world. The world should not be in the Christian. Now Lot in the book of Genesis is a great example of someone who was spotted by the world, contaminated by the world, conformed to the world. Yeah, He looked towards Sodom and saw that although it was an evil place, it was a prosperous place. He then lived near the city of Sodom. 
Then he lived in the city. He moved in. And then he became a leader in that city. In the end, he lost everything. His sin and compromise cost him everything. And as the saying goes, Lot was saved by the skin of his teeth, <laughs> or as through fire in uh, 1 Corinthians 3.15, which says, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, in the New Testament, it says that righteous Lot was tormented by the things that he was seeing and experiencing. But he chose to be there. He was tormented by the things he was saying. Righteous Lot, he was saved. He was a believer. But he was tormented. And so if we don't choose to stay in the mirror, in front of the mirror and to clean ourselves up as God shows us where those things are, then we'll be tormented. Our sin is going to make our lives a misery. So, conclusion. A quote from Maya. There is no book with so lofty an ideal of what life may become when it is yielded to the grace of Christ. A cleansed heart and unspotted robe, no sin allowed and permitted in the soul, and no evil habit allowed to dominate and enthrall the life. I'll read that again. There is no book, that's the book of James, with so lofty an ideal of what life may become when it is yielded to the grace of Christ. A cleansed heart and unspotted robe, no sin allowed and permitted in the soul, and no evil habit allowed to dominate and throw the life. And the main verse I want to just finish with now, just read, is James 2.21. Can we read it together? Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Father, thank you for these very powerful and convicting words. Lord, help us to take this to heart. Help us to remember that it's not good enough just to listen to the sermon, but we need to do the sermon. The sermon's been said, but now it needs to be done. Help us to be like that example of the woman who wants to look pretty. Help us to pay the same attention to our character to clean up our character. When you show us through your word a flaw in our character, that we take the time to fix that. Lord, your spirit is working in us, but we need to cooperate. We need, as the Bible says, we need to cleanse ourselves. It's a two-way street. And if we're going to be free from sin, part of it depends on us too. So help us to be faithful, to continue in your word to be doers of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.